God's grace, peace, and mercy be with you on this uh, 16th Sunday after Pentecost through Jesus Christ. Amen. The Bible's full of contradictions. The Bible contradicts itself. You ever heard people say this? I think many of us have. I heard my mom say it in mixed company when I was young, yet I never saw my mother pick up a Bible and read it. Never. If you ever hear someone say the Bible contradicts itself, ask the person, well, what is it? What's the contradiction? Where is it? Show me what you're talking about. The response you'll likely get is, it just does. However, and somewhat ironically, if you're familiar with the Bible, whether you're a scholar or a student, you can find some things which sound contradictory. It's kind of funny how naysayers accuse the Bible of contradicting itself, and it turns out they're partly right. They just don't know how. The difference is when you're not a skeptic or a naysayer, these contradictions don't discredit the whole Bible for you. In fact, these uh, contradictions make the Scripture more interesting, more alive and engaging. They beg you to dig deeper and discover more what God is saying to you with these confusing paradoxes. So I want to spend some time with you today on one of these uh, contradictions. It occurs in the book of James. James, everyone's favorite book of the Bible, right? Uh, The one we all go to for uh, every one of life's situations to see what kind of guidance God has for us, right? Not. (laughs) You know, James is often passed over, especially by Lutherans, and there's a reason for that. I'll explain later, but before we get into this any further, it might be helpful if we can establish exactly who this James is because there's three of them in the Bible. We got James 1, 2, and 3. The question is, which one of them are we hearing when we read the book of James? Well, it's not James number 1. James number 1 is the son of Zebedee, brother of John the Apostle, whom we hear about in the uh, Gospels. Uh, He's also mentioned in Acts. This James was one of the 12 apostles and also the first one to be killed in the year 44. So, He's too early to be the author. What about James number two? He's James, the brother of Jesus, mentioned in Matthew and Mark. Now, Christians over the centuries have wondered if this is really Jesus' half-brother or whether brother just means fellow human being in the biblical sense. Because there are some who refused to accept that Mary defiled herself by having children with her husband Joseph. But I can tell you in the original language of these manuscripts, brother means brother. There's no reason to assume anything else. Now Jesus' brother James was an apostle, but he was not one of the twelve. He was kind of one of the ones on sort of the outer, outer circle. And he was a part of that famous scene where the, family accuse, uh, where the family of Jesus accuses Jesus of being crazy. Now, that's not a very loving and understanding brother, is it? He didn't believe at first. However, he came to believe that his brother was the Messiah 
sometime later and even became leader of the church in Jerusalem, according to Acts. Jewish historians place uh, James number two's death around the year 61. So that is well within the realm of possibility uh, that he is the author. But we also have James 3. James 3 is the son of Alphaeus and also one of the 12 apostles. There were two apostle Jameses. But nothing is really known about this guy. And so he's often called James the Lesser or James the Smaller. So, who do you think is the most likely author of the book of James? Yeah, which door? <laughs> is it door number one? It's, it's, uh, I didn't have to figure this out myself, you know. I mean, I, I, you know, we have 2,000 years of uh, uh, faithful Christian scholarship. It's James number two. Pretty sure James number two is the author of James in the Bible. So, that's the who, now the what. James is a letter, much like Paul's letter to the early Christians, but James's letter is to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. You know, he's writing to Jewish believers in Christ who are scattered throughout the Mediterranean. Uh, you know, these were people who, for the most part, were uh, driven or kicked out of their hometowns on account of their faith, on their, of their faith in Christ. Where was James when he wrote this? We don't know exactly, but somewhere other than Jerusalem because things were getting uh, pretty dangerous there for Jews and Christians. So the when for this book of the Bible is around the year 50, 17 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. And why? Why did James write this one letter to Christians when Paul was doing such a good job at the same thing? Well, if you read the whole letter, it appears James was very concerned, even a little angry, that Christians he was hearing about or, incur, uh, or encountering were inconsistent in their works. They were living mostly for themselves and they weren't putting their faith into action. And this is where the contradiction and controversy comes in with some Christians, primarily Lutherans. To get a handle on this, I think we need to start at the beginning of this letter. Now, the church lectionary has us start this mini-series with chapter 2. But I want us to take, you know, I want to take us through the whole thing in the next few Sundays. So let's put these, uh, let's put these pew Bibles to you, shall we? Get those out. Because I want to start at the beginning of this letter. And let's go to James chapter 1. Now, that's going to be page 1045 in these pew Bibles. It's towards the back. 1045. It's not very long. This isn't going to take us a long time. You can follow along or you can just listen. James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. 
For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers in the grass withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been proved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, we desire, then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow. Or turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Therefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Sounds a lot like Paul, doesn't it? Uh, but do you, uh, do you feel some tension already? James uses phrases like, be doers, not just hearers, and keep yourself unstained. You know, it gets stronger in the second chapter, uh, which we heard already. It all seems okay until you hit verse 8 in the second chapter. If you, if you really fulfill the royal law, you're doing well. Well, that seems contrary to Paul, doesn't it? And and also what follows in verses 14 through 18. Faith without works is dead. Isn't the big deal with Lutherans the fact that you don't have to do anything? You know, we're saved by faith in Jesus alone, and that faith is given to us by the Holy Spirit. We don't earn it with our good works. It's a free gift. So, I'll just tell you right now, Luther did not like James, especially early on in his career as a reformer 
because he was dealing with the church in Rome where, you know, whose theology was all about works righteousness. So Luther was going headlong into this anti-works campaign, but he did come around later to appreciate James and talk better about this book. At first, Luther called James a gospel of straw. And it's not that Luther didn't like what James has to say. It's that James doesn't call on the name of Christ very much. Only two times. And I guess that just wasn't enough for Luther. On top of that, there isn't a lot of grace or anything about Christ's atonement for sin. There isn't, a rich, there isn't as rich a theology of the cross in James as there is in the Gospels and Paul's, letter, Paul's letters and John's. And this is why we don't deal with it very much. This is why you won't see as many St. James Lutheran churches. You know, there are a few, including this one, wherever it is. <laughs> but they're probably named after James number one and not the brother of Jesus. It is true. The book of James is uncomfortable for Lutheran Christians because we lean on the assurance in the total forgiveness of our sin on account of Christ and not on our own good works. Paul teaches us that good works are a result of faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, when you believe that Jesus is who he says he is and you believe the things that he's done for you are true and that eternal life is happening for you right now, you will house the widow, you will feed the orphans, you will clothe the naked. You will invite the wanderer into your home. And whatever, it will happen. And Paul was no stranger to admonishing Christians when he heard or found out from other apostles that they were backsliding and living contrary to the way God expects of his people. James is saying the same thing, only in a different way than Paul. James is launching a kind of counterattack against partial Christians, people who are saved yet not living holy Christian lives. And who really can live a holy Christian life anyways? The Pope? Pastors? Church workers? All Christians have these little spheres in our lives in which we leave our biblical convictions at the door. The Christian on staff at Lovejoy Surgical Clinic in Portland, whose Sunday, has no, whose Sunday life has nothing to do with the rest of her week performing abortions. The Christian city politician whose spiritual convictions have nothing to do with his overbearing behavior at a city council meeting. A justified, sanctified believer who's been forgiven all her sins by Christ and gladly believes that but won't forgive her sister for some rude comment made years ago. You know, these are rather heavy examples, but you get the point, right? The sin of partiality was happening in James' James's day, and it continues in the church. James is rallying against that, and it, it comes off sounding like uh, works righteousness, especially the verses that are omitted, most likely on purpose in the Lutheran lectionary because they're so distracting. But verses 19 through 26, it's not, in your, it's not printed in your service folder. But here's the end of, of chapter 2, where James says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe 
and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Ooh, that doesn't sound very Lutheran, does it? This is why Luther was, had a little problem with this. But James goes on to say, and in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. James is teaching the early Christian hearers and us about the false or a misunderstanding of faith. Knowledge all by itself, which has no application or effect on the one who has it, is just as faulty as the opposite. Actions alone that have no connection with the knowledge and faith of Christ. James's point is that true faith and its response of true good works can't be separated. Works naturally follow faith. He doesn't believe we earn the forgiveness of our sin by doing good things for people. I mean, his original audience was people who were already baptized and had the promise of eternal life. And he says earlier that regeneration happens through hearing the good news about Jesus. So James is not contradicting Paul or Jesus. He's criticizing lazy and overly secure people that imagine they have a fruitful faith and don't. He's bringing out into the open the distinction between a living and a dead faith. So James is right in denying that we are saved by such a faith that is without works. After all, this faith was given to us by God who did a good work for us, right? God didn't just say he loves us and just he just didn't say I forgive your sin. He just didn't say he'll go to the cross and die. He actually demonstrated it by dying on the cross and coming back to life so that we would also come back to life after we die and live with him. That's the main thing in James. It's God's good work for you and me. And it has the power to produce good works in us for other people. There's so much more that we could learn. You know, James raises a lot of questions, and I'm out of time. So we'll revisit some of this uh, next Sunday and hear more in chapter 3. And by the time we're done with this in a few weeks, we'll know more about James than we ever did before. And we'll have even more assurance that our salvation is a free gift from God. And our works will continue being works of life for the good of those around us. And when someone says to you, the Bible contradicts itself, and they sound like they think they know what they're talking about, you'll have not only the knowledge, but also the fruit of faith to do a good work in patiently, lovingly acknowledging that, yes, the Bible does seem that way, doesn't it? Which goes a long way. But you can show them and help them see the distinction between 
living faith and dead faith. May God make it so for you, and may the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.